0: Let's open in prayer this morning. Heavenly Father, for now as we come to this time of opening up your word and hearing from you, Lord, I pray that you would speak to our hearts today, Lord. Lord, as we've been talking about worship, Lord, I pray that today we would be able to, to see, to visualize the, the end result of worship. And Lord, may it inspire us, encourage us, drive us to engage in authentic, genuine, authentic, orderly, unified worship. Help us today, Lord, to draw near to You. And we pray, Lord, that You in turn would draw near to us. This I pray in Christ's name. Amen. If you have your Bibles with you this morning, you'd turn with me to Second Chronicles, Second Chronicles, chapter five. Second Chronicles, chapter five. We're looking at verses five through uh, 5, verses one through fourteen this morning. Second Chronicles, chapter five, verses one through fourteen. Uh, looking, we've been working through uh, worship matters, right? Worship matters. Why does worship matter? And we began to, to look at, or we've seen that, uh, you know, genuine worship. We've talked about genuine worship and what genuine worship looks like. We've, we've considered the importance of unified worship, uh, the importance of orderly worship. And then last week we looked at the five elements of biblical worship, uh, reading scripture, preaching scripture, singing scripture, praying scripture, and seeing scripture which one of those seeing Scripture will see that this morning, right, in the, the our observance of the Lord's Supper. But as we've been talking about worship matters, we, we come to the conclusion of this series and ask, does worship matter? What does it matter? What does it matter? What does it mean for us to worship? When, well, 25 years ago, Mary Beth and I were... Preparing at this point in time in the year, we were preparing for our wedding in February. We'll be married 25 years. Amen. Amen. But we were preparing for our wedding. Now we were we were just kids, right? We were we were children basically. I mean, uh, she was 19. I were I was 20 when we got married. And, and if people came to us and said, "Well, what what's your plans for retirement?" Well, we'd have Said, what are you talking about, retirement? I mean, that's ages away. Who's worried about retirement now? Uh, I should have been smart and worried about retirement then. But we really had no concern about retirement, we had no vision of that future. Uh, we were just worried about here, now, right then. What, what's going to be happening in the next year? Not or really. What's the next month or two? Uh, not that. Not not what's going to happen when we get ready to retire. But now, in our 40s, uh, we began to look at retirement and a couple. A couple of weeks ago we had some friends here from Perryville and and uh, both of them have just recently retired and and they're just they're free to do whatever and they've they've got a motor home and they just go from this place to that place they just go travel 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 whenever they want to to they pick up and they go to uh, Yellowstone or, or just wherever and, and Mary Beth and I we look at that and we say hey when we get ready to retire, we would like to do some of that. We would like to have a motor home. We would like to travel. And so now, retirement plan becomes more visible for us. We see what the end result of a retirement plan could be. And so now we are getting real serious about our retirement plan so that we can have that life, so we can have that experience in the days ahead. Well, When we think about worship, we've been talking about all the elements of worship and that sort of thing, but, but what does it matter to us here and now? What does worship matter to us? What's our, our goal in this? I think that's an important question to ask. God wants us to ask that question because in His Bible, in His text, in His Scripture, He shows us the end result of worship. And so today we need to look at the end result of worship. What does the end result look like? If we engage in biblical worship, what do we get out of it? What is the end result of that kind of worship? And so we see that, first of all, uh, let me just kind of lay this out to you. I'm going to point out to you first a general principle from the New Testament. And then I want us to see an example from the Old Testament. So the general principle from the New Testament, it comes from James 4, 8. And and most of you probably know this. James 4, 8 says, draw near to God and he will draw near to you. Draw near to God and he will draw near to you. And I think that applies to us as a church. When we draw near to God, God in return draws near to us. Let me say that again. When we draw near to God, when we draw near to God in biblical worship, God in return will draw near to us. So today as we look at this and we look at the example in Second Chronicles, I hope that as we, we see this and we see the results of authentic worship, that it would inflame our hearts to want to worship God. In the way that he has prescribed we're going to look at this event in the old testament and and, and see that result of a people drawing near to god and biblical worship so second chronicles chapter 5 verses 1 through 14 as we work through this text, I'm not going to read the whole text because I want us to work through it as the story unfolds and let us see that. But as we work through it, the first thing I want us to see here is, are three ways in which we must draw near to God. Three ways in which we must draw near to God. And then I want us to see the end result of that drawing near to God. So worship begins when we draw near to God. Worship begins when we draw near to God. If you're looking there in the, in the, the text there, for, uh, chapter 5, verse 1 of Second Chronicles, let's read that first verse there. Thus all the works that Solomon did for the house of the Lord was finished. And Solomon brought in the things that David, his father, had dedicated and stored the silver and the gold and all the vessels and the treasuries of the house of God. Now let me set for you the, the context of this text This is at the end of of Solomon's building project. King Solomon was charged with the project of building a house for the Lord. And so he, he, he has completed building that first temple. There were three temples that were built, and Solomon's is the first temple that was built unto the Lord. And, and it was the most lavish, it was the, the most glorious temple of them all. Uh, Solomon really put a lot of time, a lot of effort, and a lot of resources into building this just magnificent temple. Temple. But we have to understand, as this unfolds in in this first little passage here, this first verse in chapter 5, it it reminds us that this, this whole process began long before Solomon. It began long before Solomon. In fact, before Solomon was a twinkle in David's eye, right? That's what we like to say. Before he was a twinkle in David's eye, this process was begun by David. King David, uh, way back there in, in uh, 2 Samuel, he had actually began to, to plan to build a house for the Lord. In fact, he went to his prophet Nathan and he says, hey, here's what I've got planned. I want to build a house for the Lord. I mean, the Lord has blessed me. He has given me great riches. I have m- myself a castle here. have this wonderful mansion. And now I want to build a house for the Lord. And Nathan said, hey... What's in your your heart? That's good. Do it. Go do it. But then the Lord came to Nathan that very night. And he told Nathan, he said, Nathan, I know what David's got planned, but that's not for him to do. So I want you to go to David, and I want you to tell him what I have planned. And so we see in 2 Samuel... 2 Samuel uh, chapter 7, and you don't have to turn there, I'm going to read a portion of it, but 2 Samuel chapter 7, it shows us the covenant that God made with David. And, And God told David, he says, it's not for you to build me a house, but let me just read a portion of this, I'm not going to read the whole section, but I want to just read a portion of this that really relates to our text this morning. In chapter 7, verse 11, he says, Moreover, the Lord declares to you, King David, that the Lord will make you a house. You want to build the Lord a house? But the Lord says He's going to make you a house. He's going to build you a house. When your days are fulfilled and you lie down with your fathers, I will raise up your offspring after you who, will, who shall come from your body, and I will establish his kingdom. He shall build a house for my name and I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. You see, David had desired to build a house unto the Lord, but the Lord says, I'm going to build you a house. I'm going to build you a house and I'm going to establish your kingdom forever. I'm going to bring up an offspring after you and his kingdom will be an everlasting kingdom. Now this prophecy has dual fulfillments like most prophecies many of the prophecies in the old testament it has a dual fulfillment first of all it was immediately filled in the life of solomon after uh, several years later solomon would be born to david through bathsheba and and solomon would come up and be the next king after king david And so David began to prepare and he began to build riches and build storehouses so that Solomon would have all the resources that he needed to build the the temple for the Lord when he became king. And so when Solomon became king, he began the process. He dug in and he started building this temple for the Lord. So, So Solomon is building upon this promise that God has given to David. But Solomon... You see, the other part of the prophecy, as Solomon's throne was not uh, established for an eternity, was it? In fact, if you continue to read through Chronicles, Second Chronicles, you'll come to the end of Solomon's life and you'll see this phrase that he rested, he slept with his father's. And as you go through all the, the two books of the Kings and the two books of the Chronicles, you see that after every king, at the end of his reign, it says he slept with his fathers. And that was the case for all of the sons of King David. They slept with their fathers. They, were, uh, they, they had a kingdom for a little while, but ultimately their kingdom end, ended when they slept with their fathers. You see, this, this prophecy has a dual fulfillment. It looks forward to a day when a Christ would come. From the seed of David, whose throne would be established for all of eternity. He would never die, he would never perish, but his kingdom, his throne would be established forever. This is looking forward to Christ. Because as Jesus Christ came, born of the seed of David, yet also born by the Holy Spirit, the very Son of God and the Son of Man, He was able to come, and He he provided salvation for His people by dying on Calvary's cross. But the cross did not hold Him down. The grave did not hold Him, but He was raised again. And today, He reigns for all of eternity over His kingdom. You see, that ultimate fulfillment is found in Jesus Christ. Therefore, as Solomon comes to to worship God, as he draws near to God through this worshiping at the temple that he built, he draws near to God in Christ-centered worship. He draws near to God in Christ-centered worship, looking for that final fulfillment of God's promise to first Abraham and then to King David. He looked to that. He was seeking that. He was longing for that. And so it is for us. As we draw near to God in worship, we must draw near to God in Christ-centered worship. It's an absolute must. You've noticed probably that that has been a key theme through every message of this series. It all points to Christ. Everything that we do must point to Christ. Everything that we do must be through Christ. As we said last week, Jesus said to his disciples, I'm the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. As we draw near to God, we must draw near through Jesus Christ. Our worship must be Christ-centered worship. So like Solomon, we must draw near to God in Christ-centered worship. Now once the temple was built and once all the furnishings were were constructed and and they began to, to move into the temple, the next step in Solomon's worship of God and the next step in him drawing near to God was that he assembled all of the people of Israel, all of God's people there in Israel to worship. Look there at verse 2. Verse 2 and 3 says, Then Solomon assembled the elders of Israel and all the heads of the tribes, the leaders of the fathers' houses of the people of Israel in Jerusalem, that's where he brought them, to bring up the ark of the covenant of the Lord out of the city of David, which is Zion, And all the men of Israel assemble before the king at the feast that is in the seventh month. And so here now he's ready to dedicate the temple. He's ready for that first worship service to take place in the temple. And so he assembles the people of Israel. He assembles all the people of Israel. Now now think about the diversity that must have been uh, among the whole nation of Israel think about that the different uh, attitudes the different uh, ideas that must have been present over the whole nation of israel think about just louisiana i mean here we are in louisiana and, and we're up here in northeast louisiana but but if you go down south of alexandria man they get different down there don't they I mean, that's a whole different language. There's a, they throw a little French in there. I mean, that's a different culture altogether. And we can see that diversity even within our own state. Nevertheless, you look at the nation. You look at our nation. I mean, we go up there to Boston to, to support our missionary up there in Boston, and those people are way different than we are. They have different ideas. They have different ways of doing things. Uh, there's a, quite a bit of diversity and so as King Solomon calls all of the nation to come and to worship the Lord, this is a diverse group. Right? He doesn't just call his brethren in the tribe of Judah. He calls the whole nation. Every tribe is represented there to worship the Lord. This is a diverse group. Yet they come together in unity to worship the Lord. They come in unity They set whatever differences they may have aside. Whatever different opinions they may have, they set them aside and they come together in unified worship. As we draw near to God, we must draw near to God in unified worship. That is absolutely important. I mean, we can have differences of opinions. We can have different ideas about how we should do things and and how things ought to be done. And and that's just the, the human nature. But we cannot allow those divisions, those differences to divide us. We cannot. We cannot allow that. We must come together as a unified body, set aside those differences so that we may worship and serve the Lord together as one body united in Jesus Christ. It's an absolute must. We absolutely must come together in unified worship. You know, the devil would like nothing more than to divide the church of God. I mean, that's one of the most basic principles of war, isn't it? Divide and conquer. And so if the devil can begin to work into the church and begin to have this bickering over here, well, I don't like the way we're doing this. I don't like the way we're doing that. And we have this bickering, 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 bickering. And and all of a sudden, there's a division in the church. Well, the church that's divided can't worship God. We just can't. A church that is divided can't worship God. The church that is divided can't honor God. The church that is divided can't glorify God. God died on the cross so that He might unify us, bring us together despite our differences. And so as we come together, we must be determined not to let the devil divide us, but to come together in unified worship. As James says there in the, the chapter, in the verse just before the one that we read this morning, if we resist the devil, he will flee from us. Here, church, we must resist the devil. When we see that bickering begin to take place, we need to put it to rest. We need to resist the devil. We need to come together as one body, unified for the glory of our Lord. Isn't he worth it? Isn't Jesus worth setting aside your own opinion so that His name may be lifted up and glorified above all others? We must put away all division and all things that might divide and we must come together in unified worship. We must worship God, draw near to God in Christ-centered, unified worship. Well, once God's people were assembled, the next step in this dedication of this new temple was to bring in the Ark of the Covenant into the temple. And he tells tells the the unfolding of these events in uh, verse 4 there, starting in verse 4. And all the elders of Israel came to the Levites. Or all all the elders of Israel came, and the Levites took up the Ark. And they brought up the ark, the t- uh, brought up the ark, the tent of meeting, and all the holy vessels that were in the tent. The Levitical priests brought them up, and King Solomon and all the congregation of Israel who had assembled before him were before the ark, sacrificing so many sheep and oxen that they could not be counted or numbered. Then the priests brought the ark of the covenant of the Lord to its place in the inner sanctuary of the house in the most holy place. Underneath the wings of the cherubim, the cherubim spread out their wings over the place of the ark so that the cherubim made a covering over above the ark and its poles. And the poles were so long that the end of the poles were were seen from the holy place before the inner sanctuary, but they could not be seen from outside. And they are there to this day, in perspective of the writer here. There was nothing in the ark except the, except the two tablets that Moses put there at Horeb, where the Lord made a covenant with the people of Israel when they came out of Egypt. Now there's a couple of things that that continue to to just stand out in this passage. One, it is that Saul our Samuel, I mean Solomon, excuse me, get my S's right. Solomon, King Solomon, as he assembled the people, he tasked the Levitical priest with the duty of bringing up the Ark of the Covenant out of the place where it was housed and bringing it into the the temple. And it keeps emphasizing that they used the poles, these poles that were attached to the Ark of the Covenant. Now why is that so relevant? Because the writer of this text wants us to remember the first time that David attempted to move the Ark of the Covenant. When David became king of Israel, the Ark of the Covenant had been housed for for several years in Kiriath-Jerim. Kiriath-Jerim, a little village there in Judah. And it was housed there during the whole reign of King Saul. But when David became king, he wanted God to be the central to his rule and his reign. And so he set it in his heart to bring up the Ark of the Covenant out of Kiriath-Jerim and up to uh, Jerusalem and house it there. Well, so he asked his advisors, what should I do? How do I need to go about this, bringing up the Ark of the Covenant? What do I need to do? And so the wise men, his, his counselors there, they gave him you know, the best advice they could come up with. Here's what you do, King David. You build a new cart. You build a new cart, and, and you bring up the Ark of the Covenant on a new cart. I mean, that's what we would normally do, Right? Uh, yesterday we had the Christmas parade and all the, the homecoming queens were out there and they were riding on uh, fancy vehicles, right? They, they, didn't, they didn't want a clunker. They wanted to sit on the sharpest vehicle that they could find. And, and for us, if we were going to move the Ark of the Covenant, we might say, let's buy a new Chevrolet pickup truck and throw the Ark in it, right? And, and so they, that, that, that seems like to, to be a good idea. I mean, that's the man's way. We, we, we buy a new cart, We build a fancy new cart and we put the Ark of the Covenant up on this fancy new cart and we bring it up to Jerusalem. The problem was that that's not what God had instructed. And so when they began to move the Ark of the Covenant on this new cart, along the way the ox stumbled, they hit a bump. And Uzzah, one of the drivers of the ark, he, he reached out his hand to, to steady the ark of the covenant because he, he was afraid it might fall off of the cart. And as he reached out his hand to touch the ark of the covenant, God struck him dead. God struck him dead. And this put absolute fear into King David. Oh, how can I ever possibly bring the ark of the covenant into Jerusalem? Problem was that King David he did not follow the word of the Lord. He did not move the cart as prescribed by the Lord. And so as a few months went by, God put it on David's heart again to bring the ark of the covenant on into Jerusalem. He had just kind of left it in the the closest village he could find, but now he wants to move it on into Jerusalem. So now he says, well, "Okay, here's what we're going to do. First, we're going to go to the word of the Lord." And we're going to see how the Lord tells us we need to move this thing. And he went to the, the Word of the Lord and he found there that the Word of the Lord told him that the, the Levites were to move the Ark of the Covenant and they were to move it by bearing it as a burden. And They were to put it upon their shoulders using these poles that he had designed for this very purpose. They were to put the Ark of the Covenant up on their shoulders and they were to bear it on their shoulders. And when King David followed the Word of the Lord, when he was in obedience to the Word of the Lord, he was greatly blessed. And so now as Solomon comes and he wants to bring the Ark of the Covenant into the temple of the Lord... He is following his father's advice. He is looking to the word of the Lord. And he's saying, here's how the Lord has ordained that we move the ark. And so he brings in the Levitical priest. He says, you're going to move it. You're going to bear it on your shoulders as the Lord has prescribed. King Solomon and Israel, they draw near to God in obedient worship. They draw near to God in obedient worship. They listen to the Word of the Lord. They draw near to Him as He has prescribed. And oh, how important that is. We cannot draw to God just any old way we please. As we saw last week, God has prescribed how He is to be worshipped. He has given us that direction in His Word. We must go to Holy Scripture. All of our worship must be Bible-centered. It must come from God's Word. It must rely on His instruction. We don't just get to, to do whatever we want to do. We don't get to worship the way the world might say we should worship, but we worship the way God says we are to worship. We must draw near to God in obedient worship. We must draw near to Him in obedience as a church. But even as a church, we're made up of individuals, aren't we? So even as individual members, our lives should reflect obedience to the Lord. That should be what we strive to to live for, to, to live in obedience to the Lord so that we may honor and glorify Him with our very lives. As we draw near to the Lord, we must draw near to the Lord in Christ-centered, unified, and obedient worship. So, as Solomon and all the people of Israel draw near in Christ-centered, unified, and obedient worship, what happens? What happens? What was the end result of this kind of worship for the people of Israel? Look at verse 11. And when the priests came out of the holy place, for all the priests who were present had consecrated themselves without regard to their divisions, and all the Levitical singers, Asaph, Haman, and Judithan, their sons and kinsmen, arrayed in fine linen with cymbals, harps, and lyres, stood east of the altar with a hundred and twenty priests who were trumpeters. And it was the duty of the trumpeters and the singers to make themselves heard in unison in praise and thanksgiving to the Lord. And when the song was raised with trumpet and cymbal and other musical instruments in praise to the Lord, for He is good, for His steadfast love endures forever. The house, the house of the Lord. Notice that double emphasis. The house, the house of the Lord was filled with a cloud so that the priest could not stand to minister before, because of the cloud for the glory of the Lord filled the house of God. As the people of Israel drew near to God in Christ-centered, unified, obedient worship God showed up. He showed up in a mighty way. He showed up so that that people recognized His presence. They seen His presence. The nation of Israel experienced revival and awakening because they worshipped God. They drew near to God in Christ-centered unified, obedient worship. Oh, how I long to see such such an awakening take place here at First Bastrop. What would it be like if we worship God in the way that He has prescribed for us to worship? What would it be like if we draw near to God and and see His Spirit fall down upon this place and, and awaken our hearts And give us a fresh passion for Jesus Christ. What would that look like? Do you long to see that? Do you long to see God drawing near to us in such a mighty mighty and magnificent way? I know I do. I know I do. I want to see God show up. I want to know His presence. I want to to see Him make Himself known in our presence here at First Bastrop. But if we're to draw near to God so that He may draw near to us, we must draw near to God in Christ-centered, unified, obedient worship. And dear church, when we do that, when we draw near to God as He has prescribed, Certainly, God will then draw near to us. We will see His movement among our church. We will see His power uh, explode in our very midst. I want to see a revival like Solomon saw. Do you? Will you surrender to God? Will you draw near to Him? So that he might draw near to us. For some, for some, you've never drawn near to God. Your life has been a life of of disobedience to God, a, a life distant from God. But God is calling you today draw near to me, draw near to me. Draw near to me and I will draw near to you. And the way you draw near to God is to trust in Jesus Christ. Jesus says, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. It's only when you trust in Jesus and give your life to Jesus that you truly draw near to God. And when you draw near to God in that way, God will draw near to you as He will move into your heart. He will move into your life. He'll give you a new life in Jesus. If you've never drawn near to God through Jesus today, I ask you, make today be the day draw near to God by drawing near to Jesus Christ. Oh, Heavenly Father, Lord, we thank You for this event that we read about this morning. As we see the people of Israel drawing near to You and You in response draw near to them in a mighty and powerful way. And Lord, we would pray that You would move in us so that we would draw near to You. Draw us into Your, your presence, O oh Lord. Let us draw near to You so that, we might, so that You might draw near to us. Let us see Your glory. Let us see Your presence, Lord, I pray. In Christ's name I pray. Amen.